Well, this morning as we turn to the Word, uh, we are, again, continuing through the book of, of Mark, uh, looking at the, the life and ministry of Jesus. We are actually now, uh, even though there are, we're in chapter 11 and there are 16 chapters in Mark, the rest of the book here happens in the span of about seven days. So we are uh, beginning uh, this morning now into beginning the, the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, uh, beginning with his triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem at this point here. Let's pray, though, before we, we read. Uh, we, we, need, we need the Spirit to be at work uh, in us and among us this morning here, uh, going with, with the Word. That's what we all need. And so let's pray. Uh, and let's expect him uh, to be here with us in this time. Yet, Lord God, we do expect you to be with us here by your Spirit, not because for any other reason other than simply that you have promised that that is the case. We appeal again to your promise, for we are a lifeless people apart from your, your Spirit blowing across our dead bones. Bring life to us. Restore us. Rejuvenate us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see his beauty and his majesty. Help us to see his glory. And that we would believe him more, more easily and better than we did before. Father, lead us before your, your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let him, them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. Well, it was uh, just earlier this year, there was a spectacle that hadn't been seen in, you guess you could even say generations. That was the, uh, the coronation of King Charles III to be the king of England. Again, just a testament to the longevity of his mother, Elizabeth. Uh, and uh, I didn't watch any of it. I really don't have a whole lot of interest in the things that happen with uh, the royalty of, uh, of, of England. Um, but taking note, though, of the grandeur of, of, the, of the whole procession of everything that was going on is actually stunning. The procession that went from uh, Buckingham Palace picking up Charles and Camilla to Westminster Abbey and then taking them back. It was in the royal coach, which is 
uh, laden in gold, pulled by these immense, beautiful horses. Uh, there were 2,200 dignitaries as guests who were from tw- uh, 203 countries that were invited to attend. Uh, Charles, as he was, was crowned, was anointed with, with, with holy oil because, after all, according to the Church of England, he is the Lord and protector of, of the, 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 the Church of England. But the, the holy oil that they anointed him with was, was, ble- was, was blessed at the, and consecrated at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which is the, it's a famous church because it is the traditional site of where uh, the, the cross and the resurrection took place, of Jesus' cross at Golgotha and then the empty tomb. Very conveniently located next to each other, of course. Um, but then he, uh, he received the crown jewels and, and the, uh, all the, the coronation vestments, purples, golds, jewels, glittering, everything. There was art that was commissioned for invitations. New music was commissioned to, to be played. And it was estimated, it's not known what it was, but the, the actual cost, but the, the estimated cost of the, the whole affair was any, is estimated to be anywhere between 50 million and 250 million euros. All of this was to make clear that Charles was king. The intent was to make that known to the people of England and to the rest of the world. And Jesus does the same sort of thing here. It's the same sort of idea. He intends to reveal himself as king. It's important for us to know that this was his intention the whole time. He's the one that took the initiative in his procession. It begins with sending, the, sending two of his disciples uh, to go and to fetch this particular donkey colt. One that hadn't been ridden before. It hadn't been put to ordinary use. In other words, it was set aside for consecrated purposes. And that purpose was to bear the king. Now, there are different thoughts, though, on, on, on how it was obtained, whether it was, maybe it was, was it pre-planned and with prior arrangements by Jesus? Uh, did he know that it was going to be there by his sovereign divine knowledge? It's unclear from the text here, but either way, what's important is that he initiates the procession. He's the one that intends to be noticed and noticed he would be here. It was, first of all, unusual for, for anyone coming here uh, into Jerusalem, traveling on pilgrimage from somewhere else, as they were doing, coming on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for, for uh, the, the Passover time. It was unusual, even if you had been riding an animal along the way, you always walked in on foot. You never took, took an, another animal. And so what's happening here, as Jesus is riding into the city, this is his entrance. This is his royal entrance into the royal city. And he is here seated upon the royal steed. He is riding the accolades and the praises and the shouts of his people who have been traveling along the way with him. They've seen here who Jesus is, and they are now lifting up their voices. They are lifting up their cloaks. They are lifting up the palm branches and giving him homage. All right. This is a procession that would, was not unlike the conquerors, not unlike the victorious kings of the day. Except, though, there's enough here that sets his entrance apart in uncharacteristic fashion from all of those others. There's no fancy procession here like we saw with King Charles III earlier this year. Uh, there's no fancy procession like the other Greco-Roman kings of the day 
They were honored with, or he, Jesus was honored with cloaks and with branches laid out like a red carpet rather than arrays of purple fabric as most other kings would be associated with. And he was riding upon a donkey, right? just a, a common stable animal, not a war horse, not a stallion, this lowly donkey colt. I mean, imagine here if at the royal procession for, for Charles, if he, left, if he left Buckingham Palace to go to Westminster Abbey and he got inside a Honda Civic and is driving there and everyone is waving around their handkerchiefs and their jackets. That's kind of the equivalent. But the most uncharacteristic aspect here isn't what the procession involved. It was rather who it was for. It was for Jesus, and more importantly, it was by Jesus. It was initiated by Jesus, and if you followed us through Mark, you should take note. That seems a little uncharacteristic, because all the time so far, whenever he's healed someone, whenever he's, there's been some sort of revelation of who he is, he wants to hush it. He wants to keep it on the down low. He wants to be quiet about it. He tells people over and over, you know, don't go out and tell a whole lot of people. But not anymore at this point now. He, is, he removes all the covers. He's open. He's open about it. And he assumes the position of a king entering the royal city. This is what he came to do. And he's coming into Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. And his drawing attention to himself is deliberate here. He has the intent to reveal. And it works. The people who are traveling with him, they understand what he's doing. Now, they, know the, they knew the Old Testament very well. And they especially knew the Old Testament passages that, that talked about the long-awaited Messiah King for them. And there are all sorts of allusions here in this passage, in this narrative, to some of those Old Testament ideas. And these are ideas that Jesus himself put forth. These are allusions that Jesus was deliberately choosing in other, so that the people would understand who he was here. I mean, just right here, entering Jerusalem on a donkey colt. Uh, we have in, in Zechariah 9, we had in our, our reading this morning, right? Behold, your, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, they, it's, the, the whole passage there in Zechariah 9 is about the, 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 the people of, of, of Israel and the people in Jerusalem crying out to, their, to this, this, this king coming in, this Messiah king, who is now going to be freeing them from oppression, who is going to be liberating them, who's going to be setting everything right, establishing peace among them. And here he comes, though, riding on a donkey. But that's not all, though. It even harkens back earlier into Genesis 49, verse 11. And you had Jacob... Uh, blessing and, and, and his 12 sons is giving uh, prophecies about them as he is about to die then. And when he gets to Judah, the prophecy of Judah, who would be Jesus' lineage, the royal lineage, he talks about in there a royal king, a one who, is, who would be beautiful there and one associated with tying a donkey to a, uh, tying a donkey colt to, to the vine, binding the, the, the donkey to the vine here. So what we have here is these, these Jesus' people here, they, they see all of what's going on. They know what he is intending. Jesus is this Messiah. He's our king. They recognize the moment here. 
And then they respond with the words in of Psalm 118. It's a psalm of a king who's entering Jerusalem. And they cry out with the words from that psalm. They say, Hosanna, which means God save us, save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus intends to reveal himself as king. His intent is to make known his kingship, to leave no question at all about being king, and then to reveal what sort of king that he is. In the absence of his self-revelation, there is the risk that we misunderstand what it means that Jesus is king, and we become confused about the fact that Jesus is king because we start to have other ideas that start to, 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 to creep in. But Jesus came to his people who expected him. He came, though, not quite fitting their expectations. And he defines what it means to be king. He sheds light on all of these Old Testament passages about his kingship, and he opens those up to him, and he gives further illumination. And without that, then, for us here, especially with the historical gap lying between us and these people, with that cultural gap, then we also can view and refashion Jesus as king into our own ideas. And we run the risk of drawing false assumptions about what it means that Jesus is king, about what it entails. I mean, even just the idea of a king itself is so foreign to us, right? We live in the Pacific Northwest, the in, you know, where, where, where independence, the independent spirit reigns. And that's even in a country which takes pride in the independent spirit, right? And on top of that, of a country that, takes, that, that prides itself on an independent spirit, which really sets itself apart from a lot of the other rest of the nations in the world, we are in an age where human independence is perhaps at an all-time high, where it's most valued, So some of us might even need convincing that Jesus as king is a good idea. But I want you to see this morning that Jesus as king really is good. And to understand his kingship as he intended it in his entry in Jerusalem. I want us to see that Jesus as king is really good. Because Jesus is the one who reveals himself as king. And he reveals himself as a king who first comes to do things that are far better than his people comprehend. Jesus reveals himself as a king, coming to do things that are far better than his people comprehend. At this time here, again, this this, uh, scene, there are shouts of acclamation that are filling the air. This is the king who they have pinned their hopes upon, their dreams upon. They have so many expectations with him. There is so much history lying behind their their situation. There's so much anticipation. Years and years, not just generations, but centuries of having been beaten down by by foreign oppressors. And now Jesus is entering and it seems, aha, we are finally being freed. Zechariah 9, right? He is the one who is bringing peace to the nations. He is the one here who is liberating us, who is breaking the bows of our enemies, who is obliterating the foreign chariots. The foreign nations will no longer occupy us. No more overlords. We're going to be set free. It's a people at rest here. That's what they're hoping for. Peace being established in their lands. But not just for their lands, but for the nations also. A worldwide peace. 
However, all of this under the context of Israel's king. See, for once, they're going to be the empire. They're going to be the one who's going to be occupying the world. It's going to be them. And there's this historical context to consider that over and over, they had been kicked over and over, pushed to the ground, dirt all over their nose, because their land had been a place, had been the, the gathering ground and the battleground for foreign kings. And here they were just over and over then, getting lost in all of the fighting. And it was humiliating for them, especially when, if you think about the glory days that they had of kings before, glory days of David, glory days of Solomon. But now here, the hope that they are anticipating with this king, with Jesus here, it was a restoration of that. It was geopolitical. It rested upon them as being a nationalistic people. It was the hope of reclaiming political power. Their vision of restoration would be a strong nation. It would be established in power and righteousness. And instead of political turmoil, it would be peace. And then justice as befits the righteous king. What comes to your mind when you consider Jesus as king? What are you expecting? What are you anticipating? What are you hoping for when you are thinking about Jesus as king? I think that's a good question for us to think about because so many times we talk about what Jesus is king and we say it in kind of cliche ways sometimes and we don't put the necessary thought into, well, what does it mean that Jesus is king? Your Your vision of hope, your idea of hope reveals your understanding for the solution of the world. Essentially, your, your understanding of salvation. And that then reveals what you believe the problem of the world is. Now, what sort of hope is it that they trusted in? These people trusted in a political hope. And what does a, a political hope therefore reveal? That, that salvation is the changing of society. Therefore, then, what's the problem? If, if, if the, the salvation is a changing of society, what's the problem? Is it something only external to us? Or is there something much deeper? See, real hope must be more than just political or else it deals only with the right ordering of society and it actually neglects why and how society collapses. And friends, that's not real hope. See, what is the nature of of Israel's bondage here? Why did that happen? Because of their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. What is the nature of political instability still today? It is sin. It is our disordered desires. What is actually the nature of all wrecked peace at whatever level it is, whether it's at a political level or even in the level of our relationships? Selfishness, human sin. See, it's not just just an external issue. It's internal. It involves disordered desires, and those desires can't be legislated to be part of the solution. See, if Jesus came as a king like they would, were expecting, he would fall short of their actual needs. But Jesus' kingship is different. He offers a different solution because he knows the deeper problem. And it's a solution that's actually more in accord with, in, more in accord with Zechariah 9. It runs down to the fundamental levels. That his solution, the only solution here, is to destroy the true cause of their oppression. It's not the foreign enemies, it's the own, their own human sin and their sinfulness, their unfaithfulness. And Jesus came as king to remove it, to cast it away into the sea. And he came to take it upon himself 
and to kill it by himself being killed, by, himself, by offering himself up to death as he bore it. What wrecks peace? Selfish desires wreck peace. Selfish desires lead to all other sins which wreck peace at all levels, right? Political, social levels, the interpersonal levels. And Jesus was entering Jerusalem as the conquering king going to do battle against the real enemy. But it wasn't Rome. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, the Greeks. It was sin. It was sinfulness. And our expectations of solution and of salvation must encompass the whole work of Jesus, all of who he is, or else they'll fall far short of reality. Because if that's not dealt with, then there's no real hope. The problem runs far deeper than any of us could imagine. Every aspect of society is tainted. Political solutions will not solve it. The best that a political solution can do is just simply to alleviate the, the, the symptoms. You can't just impose this. It involves transformation of people. Transformation, actually, of the course of the world itself. It takes sin being dealt with. It takes sin defeated. It takes renewal of the entire course of the world. It takes resurrection. It takes a king who was crucified, a king who was raised, a king who was crucified to satisfy God's wrath, to destroy sin, to usher in the hope of resurrection life that will someday break forth in a shining light over the entire earth. Hope must keep the whole Jesus firmly within its sights. Anything less is deficient from your real hope. See, Jesus' kingdom isn't a political reality for us to experience now. It is otherworldly. It is transcendent. It breaks into this world, and certainly it has implications for politics and for society insofar as it involves ethics. Right? Jesus came saying that what is, what is the, the, the two primary ethics? It boils down to love God and love your neighbor. But that can't, none of that can be confused with a political movement. It can't be confused with an earthly kingdom. And as for myself then, as a herald of this kingdom here, I am charged with speaking only insofar as the word says, which is the otherworldly aspects of it, which is forgiveness. It's the ethical demands. And it's to remind you of hope, of a hope that transcends any political movement. And we have to remember that Jesus has things to say to all political sides. Jesus has important things to say to all movements. But we can't only listen to Jesus when he affirms the things that we believe and then ignore us and how he might push us or press us in some of our other beliefs. See, that's an even application of what it means to be a people of the word, of listening carefully to how he speaks to all of us. Second, though, Jesus reveals himself as a king who unites gentleness and firmness. He reveals himself as a king who unites gentleness and firmness. There's something very different about him that's apparent as he enters. Again, we said it before, his mount, it's not a royal steed, it's a donkey colt. And back to that passage from Zechariah 9, it says that here he comes humble and mounted on a donkey, coming on an ordinary animal, an animal characterized by humility. Unlike the the, the brash kings and rulers of the day riding in on their, their fancy horses. Now Jesus as a king is a conquering king who liberates. He means business. That's what he came to do. 
He takes it seriously. He's not afraid to fight because after all, establishing peace means vanquishing enemies, right? But he's also a king who's humble. He's a king who's loving. He's a king who's gentle, a king who's benevolent, a king who knows his rights. He knows who he is, but he puts others first. And what happens if you have a king who's only one or the other? What happens if you have a king who's only a conqueror, a liberator? What do you think of with that? It's associated with power and strength and authority. Someone who resorts to using their authority as the solution. And oftentimes in ways that are non-empathetic. Just simply seeing them as, 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 as people who either have to be crushed or people have, who have to be ruled. But on the other hand, though, you have a king who would be gentle and humble. Someone who's gentle and humble. Someone who is associated with empathy and care. Always the listening ear. But, you know, someone, though, if you only have, have gentleness and humility, you have someone who's deeply empathetic. Someone who is always there to listen. But perhaps, though, someone who isn't very helpful either. But both come together in Jesus. You have a firm king, a king who, who conquers, a king who takes liberation seriously, a king who takes justice and righteous seriously. And he's firm in the establishment of peace and justice and righteousness. But you also, on the other hand, have a king who is gentle with his people, who has a listening ear, a king who's empathetic, and a king who's caring. That's the king who Jesus is. He's gentle and firm to his people. Firmness means that he has demands. He lays claim to all of who you are. That's what it means to be a king, right? And he takes that seriously. He redeems a people for his purposes, to follow after him in his will, all right? To to uphold the law of God, all right? He wills our whole selves to love God and love neighbor. Those are his demands upon us as king. His law is no different than than the law of God there. He enforces it down to its depths that it's not just the external, but it's also the internal. He is firm in these things regarding all that you do, all that you say, all that you think, all of it according to his demands. But we can't forget that he's also gentle. He's humble. He's gentle in how he regards his people. When we do inevitably fail to uphold his his laws, he is not a king who just comes down and crushes us and beats us down into submission. He does not look at us as failures when we do fail, or he doesn't just send us to the prison when we run away, but he gets down with us and he bears us up in love. And he's he's not gentle in that. He's okay with with, with all of our failings. He doesn't just think, oh, it's, it's okay. But rather, he grants us grace when we fail. It's the costly grace of his cross. And he points to his wounds. He points to his righteousness for us. That's the basis of our acceptance before God. They are the gifts of his love. He actually deals with our failings in the deepest way possible. And he's gentle with us then too. To renew our hearts to grow in upholding his demands as king. He graciously works in us to make us more obedient kingdom constituents. He changes our hearts. He changes our affections. He changes our wills so that our actions will be then therefore changed. He's gentle in ruling us as a king. He's gentle in interceding for us also as our high priest. He is sympathetic to us in our weaknesses because he too bears humanity. 
He knows what it's like to walk along the course of life like we all do. He is pleading our cause perpetually before God the Father on the basis of his shed blood on the cross. Friends, if all of this seems too good to be true, it's because no human ruler, no human authority does anything like this. His kingship has authority over all of you as a whole person, over your ethics and your beliefs. It means that he has rights over you. But do you also, though, believe that he is a gentle and a good king? That he's good enough for you to trust when he's, then what he says runs against what you want to believe. Third, Jesus reveals himself as a king who deserves the accolades of his people. A king who deserves the accolades of his people. And Jesus reveals himself with specific intents. Right, he is, again, casting allusions all through this, this narrative of his messianic nature, of his being a, a king. And the people pick up on this, and they recognize the moment there. And they, they say, hey, Psalm 118 fits the context of all of this. It's a time to sing and to celebrate. Even though their expectations weren't quite, time, or weren't quite right, this was still the right response that they had, crying out here. And like we might have a, 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 a we might use a, a, a familiar or a fitting song to celebrate in a particular moment. They use the words of Psalm 118. Because it fits the context of the moment for them. Psalms are oftentimes guides for our prayers and our responses to God. And they do serve to, to, to teach us in various moments of life, shaping our responses. But their words can also be used. And they use Psalm 118. It's a, it's a hymn of praise and thanks uh, to, to God on the occasion of a victorious king entering the city. I'm just going to read briefly a, a, a few sections of it. Psalm 118, particularly uh, beginning later in, uh, in, in, in verse 19. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. That's the king speaking as he's coming into the royal city, Jerusalem. And then the people are crying out in verse 25, Save us, we pray, O Lord, which save us in Hebrew means Hosanna. That's what it is. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Here they are. They are using, they are using the words of Psalm 118 as the king. And Jesus is coming into the city as the gates of righteousness are opening to him. They are celebrating God's steadfast love to his people of being a refuge and a help to them. They say, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And then they base their song off those other words. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Again, in Hebrew and Aramaic, they'd be saying, Hosanna. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their actions here, or they are showing honor in their actions. They are spreading out the red carpet before Jesus with, with their cloaks, with the palm branches. Because this is a moment, momentous occasion. This is a long-anticipated day. Though without the glamour and the pomp of King Charles, though, it's far more significant than the crowning of the King of England. Because the royal son of David, the divine son, is entering his city about to, or about to establish his kingdom. But he's not just a Jewish king. He is the, the divine son. He is the mediator between God and humanity being escorted into his last days before he would crush evil's fallen grip upon human hearts and even the creation itself. 
Not just a king for the Jews. A king for the world. A king for all who are brought under his royal banner of love. And then we raise our voices with them in praise. Doxology, words of praise. Doxology is the response to Jesus' kingship. And if they had misunderstandings about, who, about his, what his kingship looked like, how much more then should we sing and rejoice knowing the full extent of his salvation? See, Jesus isn't merely to be gazed at. He's not just an object of study. But we are to be moved by seeing who he is. Right? When was the last time that you saw something that was truly beautiful to the point that it moved you? Perhaps even to words of, of doxology. Was it a scene in nature? Was it witnessing childbirth? Was it a piece of art? Was it, a, was it music? I don't think for myself, just a, a couple weeks ago, I was fishing on the Wilson River, and there I was on that, that early morning with the standing in the water as it's, as it's bubbling and rushing over my feet. The golden sun just coming up over that mountain there and shining its golden light that's reflecting on all of the fir trees. And then with that cool breeze passing over the water, all I could do was just simply have words of praise and doxology just come from my lips because it was stunning. Where do those sorts of words come from in those moments? They come from the heart, right? They come from the heart. They come from the will as it's moved of seeing, or from awe and wonder and having that go, move into praise. See, Jesus isn't just to be stared at blankly. He's not just to be studied, not just to be looked at with an empty gaze or studied devoid of the heart at all, but with eyes that truly see him for who he is. Friends, there are no neutral facts about Jesus. Seeing him should always move us into glorifying him. It's more than just simple perception. It's a movement of the will. To be in awe of his beauty and his wonder. Friends, have you seen Jesus like this? Studying Jesus without being brought into worship does him a dishonor. Are we seeing him truly? It's an invitation for us to behold his beauty. To praise and honor and love him with the whole person, with our mind, with our heart, with our will, and perhaps even with our, both our souls and our bodies. Right? That's what our voices are for, right? God's given us hands to lift up. And that's what we'll do in a moment here with our words. We're going to have the confession of faith. And the confession of faith every week here is a verbal declaration of praise to the person of Jesus. Don't let it be a moment where you just see those words and then let them fall from your lips. But see the words, understand them as best as you can, and then let your voice be a vibrant affirmation of the beauty of Jesus, who is your prophet, who is your priest, and who is your king. Say those words, Hosanna, save us, Lord, save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be our king our Redeemer, our Lord, God in human flesh, crucified for our sins, raised for our, our justification and resurrection life, who is enthroned in the heavenly places even for us right now and who is with us as we are united to him in our faith.
Let's pray. Jesus, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed are you, Jesus, who came in the name of the Lord on Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Blessed are you who will come again in the name of the Lord, who is our salvation. The one who stands firm, the one who is seated upon the heavenly places for us right now. The one who we are united to. Thank you that you are a king. That you are a king far better than we can imagine. Far better than we even have a context for. And that when those moments when we are having trouble really trusting you, because we don't have a context for it, let us, just simple, let us simply trust in your word the, word, the word that you have given to us here, that you are a good king, that you are firm, but yet you are humble and gentle. Thank you for giving yourself. And make us a loving and obedient people who are formed under you, under your reign. And let us be moved by your beauty. Amen.